Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We're back after a short summer break for the start of our second season of the podcast. I am sure you have noticed that Chatham House has not been quiet while we've been away. It's been commenting widely on Niger, Prigozhin, today on Gabon, all these things. And thank you very much indeed for your comments and thoughts on all that. But On this podcast for our first episode, we are returning to the much-discussed topic of Ukraine and its counter-offensive and where we are in all that. Since June, the Ukrainian armed forces have been fighting hard to breach the substantial defensive lines established by the Russian army in the east and south. Two months on, the pace has been slow, the fighting intense, so we're going to talk about the current state of that, what it means for Western support for Ukraine, and what may happen next if the front lines remain in their current shape. Joining me from New York is Christopher Miller, who writes about Ukraine for the FT, is the FT's correspondent in Ukraine, and is author of the book The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, which we were just discussing, is displayed prominently in the Chatham House Library at the moment. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to have you here. And joining us from Paris is Ulrika Franke, a senior fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Very good to have you here, Ulrika. It's my pleasure. Great to have you as well. And in the studio with me here in London are two very familiar voices on this subject on the podcast, James Nixie and Arisia Lutsevich, who are the director and deputy director, respectively, of our Russia and Eurasia program. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be back. Thanks, Bronwyn. Very good to have you all here. The subject remains with us as it has very much for the past year in which we've been running these podcasts. So let's start with the state of the counteroffensive. Chris, perhaps you can take us into this, where things currently sit. Yeah, you know, we're about, what is it now, three months into the counteroffensive. And I think, you know, if we had to boil it down, I would say Ukraine has not made the type of progress that it had hoped for, certainly not the progress that its Western backers had hoped for. It got off to a very slow and and rather rough start with the loss of a significant amount of Western weaponry and personnel as well. We saw the Ukrainians take a step back and rethink its counteroffensive strategy after this initial attempt at a combined forces operation in this Western style in which some of these brigades had been trained. Ukrainian forces moved back to its our artillery-focused counteroffensive strategy of, you know, really pounding Russian positions, moving forward slowly. The reason being that these defenses, as you mentioned at the top here, are heavily fortified and have posed a significant challenge to Ukrainian forces. And, you know, now we're in this phase where the Ukrainians are feeling, I think, a little bit more confident in their abilities to to conduct this counteroffensive using, I would argue, a combination of what it has been trained to do by Western forces and some of the tactics that it has employed on its own over the course of the last nine years, but especially over the course of the last year and a half with some success. And we're seeing it now pierce some of the first lines of of Russian defenses. There have been some captures of small villages and towns on the path toward the towns of Tokmak and Melitopol, where the Ukrainian forces are trying to achieve a significant breakthrough in order to cut off this land bridge for the Russians. But it's still a very slow 
grinding counteroffensive. The Ukrainians are taking heavy casualties. They're taking, they've taken fewer in the last few weeks because of this strategic change. And they're being a little bit more cautious. I think we've seen comments recently from uh, Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov saying, you know, we're not just going to commit our forces for the sake of committing forces. We're going to, you know, be very careful about losing our personnel. You know, I think the Ukrainians are very aware that at least when it comes to manpower, the Russians still greatly outnumber the Ukrainians. And this is something that they're very aware of. You know, we're still at this phase right now where I would say it's too early to say that the counteroffensive is a failure. You know, the Ukrainians have committed a lot of reserves now. That is, I think, cause for slight concern if we don't start seeing some more gains on the battlefield. But I wouldn't count them out quite yet. Um, You know, the Ukrainians have always... I think surprised us in their ability to wage counteroffensives against the Russians. You know, I, I think there's still time yet for the Ukrainians to achieve, you know, some of their goals in this counteroffensive. But at this point, I would be hesitant to say, you know, we're going to see the type of counteroffensive success that we saw with Kharkiv last year, for example. I've got a whole stack of questions because of what you've just said, but one of them, can you give us a sense of the Ukrainian losses? You've referred to that quite a lot and about how that really has not and we'll yeah. put words in your mouth, but shocked them and forced a change of tactics. Yeah. You know, in the first couple of weeks, it was dozens a day, if not... You first know, couple of weeks of, of the whole conflict? Yeah, the first, first of, couple of weeks of the counteroffensive. counteroffensive. Yeah. We saw, you'll recall these videos that we saw coming out of the southern... Asia region where Western weaponry, including some tanks and American Bradley fighting vehicles had been destroyed on the battlefield. There was this really harrowing video in particular that I think provided a really accurate glimpse into just how hellish the fighting is and how fortified these Russians, Russian lines were. And it showed these Ukrainian soldiers jumping out of American Bradley vehicles and stepping on landmines one after the other. And just in um, an 11 minute, I think it was an edited clip that showed 11 minutes of what was a three hour operation. There was something like a dozen Ukrainian soldiers that had been killed or wounded pretty badly. And so that gives you a sense of really how densely mined these fields are and how difficult this fight is for them. So I would say at least, you know, dozens of guys on a daily basis in the first couple of weeks. I think that has slowed to, you know, maybe dozens of guys on the worst days now. But when I was there over a series of days in July along the front line in the south and the east of the country, I was with several battlefield medics and at two of the frontline hospitals. And on those days, I saw five or six guys come in a four-hour period. And the day before I had arrived, a surgeon there told me he had dealt with about 140 guys coming through over a 48-hour period. So there are you know, a, you know, days here and there where the Ukrainians are taking extremely heavy losses. And these are losses also that are some of their more seasoned and veteran soldiers or those who had been trained by Western allies to fight this counteroffensive. Thank you for those very sobering facts and that description. Ulrico, there have been reports this week of massive drone attacks by Ukraine on Russian air bases. Is that escalating? It's definitely increasing. So we've had drone attacks on Russian territory for 
a while now. I think the most notable so far were those in December when Russian airfields were being hit by Ukrainian drones and being destroyed. But just over the last few days and week and a half, we had an enormous increase of these attacks on Russian cities, Moscow most importantly, and on various kind of military targets. And it seems to me that at this point, you can really talk about kind of change in tactics or this being part of the counteroffensive effort. I'd say that at this point, these attacks aren't extremely militarily relevant yet. Some of them have actually hit important military targets. There are reports of kind of Russian aircraft being destroyed or at least damaged on the ground, which A, is really embarrassing for Russia, and also B, is a great kind of cost-benefit situation because drones tend to cost much less than actually big manned aircraft. But yeah, I think mostly these attacks that we've seen are about signaling to the Russian population and the Russian regime that this war isn't just going on somewhere far away in another country, but that if you start a war and if you attack a neighbor, the war can come back to you. And also signaling to the Russian population that the regime, the military, isn't really able to... Um, guarantee the people's security. Because even those drones that are being intercepted, and you know, a few of them, many of them are also being intercepted, even they need to come down somewhere. And on the way down, they tend to also cause some damage. And yeah, you that there's also a danger to, to just the normal Russian population. A really interesting point you make there, even if they're not that effective at the moment about the symbolism of those. James, are we looking at a long war? I don't think we're going to see any immediate results, certainly this year. One of the things we said at the beginning of this year, I recall, was that this won't be the final year of war, but it will be the crucial year. But from a recent research trip to the US, in fact, parts of the US government told us that they were prepared, they were looking at 2025 in terms of this war was certainly going to extend until then. I would broadly agree with Chris that it's looking, it's it's hard progress, of course, of the Ukrainians right now. But I also think that the Ukrainians are fighting a slow and patient war, slowly dismantling the Russian military as well. And of course, as Chris said, it's a heavily mined, deep fortifications. And one of the reasons where Ukrainians aren't making more progress is because they're not receiving sufficient mine clearing equipment. So obviously, to a certain extent, we are not so much responsible for Ukrainian progress, but we do have some impact upon it. Arisia, how can... Ukraine hold up under this? Do you, how is public support holding up? I was, James was just talking about the military supplies into you know this point in the counteroffensive when the breakthroughs that everyone hoped for have not quite come through. Ukrainians have very sobering understanding what is going on. They are burying their beloved ones, saying farewell to the soldiers and heroes almost every day. So it's not like they live in some kind of illusion and pinky glasses. And I think understanding that what is at stake is what brings Ukraine together. And what is at stake is a survival of Ukraine as the viable nation that has control of the Black Sea, that is able to trade, and that is not constantly under the threat of genocidal war from Russia. Up to date, the recent polling shows that almost 90% of Ukrainians are rejecting any territorial concessions in exchange of peace. Yes, they want peace. Nobody wants more peace than Ukrainians, but they understand that the, any kind of deal-making with Putin would only you know, 
prolong the war and put it on the shoulders of the next generation. They are backing Zelensky in his plan, the peace plan that he puts forward. They are standing firm by his agenda. And I think what gives hope also is the rate of attrition that Ukraine is causing to the Russian armed forces. It's not just Ukrainians that are dying. Russians are dying roughly at 20,000 a month. If you look at the numbers, Ukrainians since the start of the war destroyed more than 8,000 tanks, more than 5,000 artillery. All of this is depleting Russian and undermining Russian capacity to wage war. Chris, do you agree with those numbers on the Russian side? Yeah, yeah. I think the numbers of Russian losses are are huge. And I think not these, only These the, are astonishing numbers. I mean, in terms really of the, the number of people compared to any other conflict I can think of. Absolutely. Look at them compared to Russia's or the Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan. And these numbers are hugely, you know, they greatly outnumber um, that, what, nine-year, decade-long invasion. But also what Oresia said, which is also really important, you know, the Ukrainians have done a a very good job of eliminating Russian uh, military materiel and equipment. The number of losses of Russian tanks is just, is huge, especially if you consider the fact that this was supposed to be the second most powerful military in the world when it invaded Ukraine in February of 2022. No, that's right. James, were we too slow as the West in sending the equipment that has now been sent or is on its way in the case of the F-16s? Yeah, I suppose it is frustrating to think, isn't it, what could have been achieved had we sent more earlier because of of course, at the beginning of this war, the Germans were just sending helmets. We went from helmets to tanks, tanks to longer and longer range artillery. Now we're talking about cluster munitions and F-16s, as you say, and particularly, and I think that precision long range weapons would particularly help in, in this conflict. So, of course, to a certain extent, there is a, there is a what if. But I think one thing, as you know, the Chatham House report of July, it said that we Ukraine definitely won't get the result it requires if we don't, not so much flood Ukraine weapons, because there are absorption questions. But it certainly has no realistic possibility of achieving an optimal outcome, or there will be a suboptimal outcome or a disastrous outcome, if we don't supply the necessary. And as I say, they are screaming out right now for precision long-range weapons and mine-clearing equipment. Ulrika, what do you make of this balance that the supply, country supplying weapons have been trying to strike all the way through, of not escalating the conflict with Russia, not provoking, for example, use of tactical nuclear weapons, but still giving Ukraine what it needs? And James has just been describing the gradual escalation of the force of the equipment supplied. Does that seem the right balance in retrospect or, or not? Yeah, I guess it depends on whose position you take. From a Ukrainian side, I think it is very clear that it's the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military that has paid for this gradual approach with their lives, often, as Chris was saying. And so you can obviously make the argument that it was the wrong approach. That being said, from a Western point of view, and I'm German and follow very closely the German debate, and I'd say that that in Berlin, the thinking is that Overall, this kind of gradual approach of always going one step further, but not going in everything from the beginning was and is the right approach because there is this continuous fear of yeah, potential escalation. And of course, a nuclear escalation that still remains a topic, even though you know we're one and a half years into this war. And this hasn't really been the topic some people thought. And I have some fim- sympathies for the th- this thinking as I, it is always hard to make a counterfactual point and say, you know, what would have happened if we had done this differently? But I can see that, that these fears of escalation weren't completely un unfounded. And just one point I wanted to make, because I think that this kind of came out in our discussion also, what Chris said, 
I think, you know, we are talking about a, a war of attrition, it has been said, I think we are increasingly also just seeing kind of military industrial complexes fighting each other. And there really is a question as to who, who in the end, Russia or Ukraine supported by the West is able to produce enough equipment fast enough to win this war. I obviously I, I study a lot kind of drone aspect of this and in this area you really see this. Russia is planning to build 6,000 drones, initially Iranian drones and then Russian made drones in factories in Russia over the coming months and Ukraine has just announced that they're planning to to manufacture 200,000 armed, armed uh, unmanned systems. I think they're talking about suicide drones or kamikaze drones. And this really is about, you know, who has more equipment, faster, you know, which military industrial complex in a way can win here. And this is one of the elements of this war as well, in addition, of course, to the war of attrition of people. Absolutely. Let's use that as a point to move into just a wider look at what next in this war and particularly you were just talking about the support from other countries for Ukraine and Ulrika I wonder if we could stay with you and you could take us into what Germany is thinking now in terms of support for Ukraine. So I think obviously the German position has developed a lot over the last year and a half and really especially in the kind of first months of the invasion after February. So initially, you know, before the invasion started, Germans and the German government were really reticent to to send any weapons whatsoever. I remember being in kind of discussions in early February where, you know, this was basically being excluded and was seen as escalation. And then we had this kind of big Zeitenwende, the speech by Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, just three days into the war where, you know, many things were announced, including weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And Germany really became, you know, from this country that, as you said, initially said, yeah, we're going to deliver 5,000 helmets to one of the most important military supporters of Ukraine. It's either second or third place, depending on kind of which statistics you look at, but definitely a hugely important supporter of Ukraine, militarily speaking and financially speaking as well. I think for now, the support is holding up largely. But as Chris was mentioning, I mean, there is this element of people, you know, throughout the West were kind of banking on this counteroffensive being you know, at least more successful than it looks right now. And there is always this question of like, how long is this supposed to go on? How is this just going to go up all the time? Are we going from helmets to howitzers to tanks to aircraft? And, you know, this is just going to be the thing we're going to keep doing over the next few years. Support so far is is holding up in the government as well as largely speaking in the population. But there's always this question of will this go on for forever? You've put your finger on it. En- endless wars, as they, yeah. as they call it in America. Chris, you're in the States at the moment, and you know the US has supplied more than the rest of Europe put together in terms of military support for Ukraine. And it's very hard to me to see how Ukraine can advance or even hold its own without continued US support. And yet Donald Trump, thanks to his mugshot in part, is riding even higher in the polls for the Republican nomination. Would you say it's fair to say that if Donald Trump won the presidency again, that's bad news for Ukraine? I think so. That's certainly what the Ukrainians feel as well. You know, it's it might feel like a lifetime ago that Donald Trump tried to blackmail President Zelensky over, you know, a deal that would see military equipment delivered to Ukraine. But that's still fresh in Ukrainians' minds, and they haven't forgotten about that, especially finding themselves in the position that they're in now. And I think one of the Ukrainians' goals at the moment in the short term is to try to secure as much 
weaponry as they can and equipment as they can right now to have success on the battlefield, to show that the West is backing a winner here, to try to secure longer term or you know medium term security guarantees that would see you know, a guarantee of continued Western support, including Western deliveries to Ukraine over the course of not only the next several months, but perhaps the next couple of years or few years that could potentially, you know, allow for, you know, something to be agreed already prior to a potential second term by, you know, by Donald Trump. But also there's a lot of political lobbying and messaging being done. And I think that's going to increase on the Ukrainian side in the West to try to, you know, continue to see that or even strengthen that bipartisan support and particularly that Republican support that we have seen historically up until now, certainly for Ukraine. James, you were in Washington recently. How do you think that argument is going down with the Biden administration and Democrats of better better give Ukraine the help now just in case things change? First of all, <clears throat> let me just say that if you're too modest to plug your article wrong in the FT today in Chris's newspaper, let me, whereby, you, uh, get, yeah. <laughs> where Donald Trump, uh, you talk about us hiding under the covers uh, about the, the, the specter of a Donald Trump presidency. And I would certainly agree with that. Although I would, I suppose I would add to it that I am, I suppose, just as concerned about, how do I put this, about Ukraine's international friends and this weakening of support for now about its potential enemies, if you take Donald Trump as, a, as an enemy. Look, it's a broad church. He wouldn't the, say an enemy. He would no. just say, I don't want America to be involved in endless wars. Let's sure. go to a settlement. How about the, you know, the deal maker, yeah. as he sees himself? Yeah. Yeah. How about this deal? Absolutely. It's a broad church. Different parts of the American government have different responsibilities. You talked about the US. One person who is concerned with strategic nuclear strikes obviously is concerned about the possibility of escalation, as Ulrika was talking about, into Armageddon. Others actually propose a much stronger line and would criticize their own administration for not doing nearly enough. So it is quite a, there's quite a wide range there. But I think on balance, a lot of people do revert to President Biden's call it mature or prudent or overprudent, depending upon your take, as Ulrika says, but ultimately NATO must not get involved in a kinetic fighting war with Russia. That's where the line stops. And there are some Republican candidates who've backed continued support for Ukraine, but they're right down at the bottom of the polls, as are most of them, apart from Donald Trump. Arisia, how does this question of continued support go down in Ukraine? It's obviously something that President Zelensky has been extremely skillful in keeping going. But as we've been discussing, success helps support and something that might be stalling is much more difficult to use to keep up support from the West. How do you think Ukraine is going to handle this? It's important to bring us back to this endless war scenario. And this scenario is only beneficial to one person, and that's Putin, to be honest, because if you look at what his power holds in Russia, he needs endless war. He is investing now 30% of Russian budget in the war effort. He's mobilizing, he's redistributing assets of Russian companies into more loyal hands. And we see more claim on Ukrainian territory. Let's remember, Russians want more Ukrainian territory, not less, in any kind of hypothetical deal. And this is where Ukrainians cannot agree. And this is where, you know, the West 
Western assistance is so critical. What is also telling recently, and we didn't discuss this, Ukraine's own capabilities to attack Crimea, where they've destroyed the uh, radar uh, S-400 with uh, Triumph, called Triumph, ironically, to, uh, with its own capability. And we see all those drones and other uh, missiles that will eventually inflict damage that Ukraine made. And this is something that we will see across this summer. Ukrainians will be holding defenses as much as possible in the north, because let's also remember Russians are trying to attack there, and they will concentrate all the efforts on the southern accent to collapse the front in the south and to isolate Crimea, because it's easier to isolate the peninsula than to win war on the territory that immediately is in immediate proximity of your enemy. Ulrika, just on the question of European support more generally, the funding for Ukraine has got quite tangled up in the European Commission budget process. Do you think there's wider European support for continuing to to pay for and to send arms to Ukraine? We've obviously seen some particular examples of commitment from the Netherlands, for example, with the F-16s. But how would you judge it more widely? Mm, I'd say, broadly speaking, yes, there is a willingness to support Ukraine further financially for humanitarian aid as well as militarily. Of course, you know, when you talk about Europe, you have in the EU, 27 countries, and they have different points of views and different interests, and not all countries have been involved in the same way in, in the support. But nevertheless, even at the EU level, or especially at the EU level, the EU as an organization has spent billions of euro on support for Ukraine, and very importantly, including kind of military support. The EU is reimbursing European countries for their military equipment that they're sending to Ukraine. This is actually a really big deal for the European Union, which was absolutely not built with this kind of absolutely. idea in mind. And yeah, I'm on, on that, I'd say that the EU has been doing quite a lot. And of course, you're right, there are kind of political considerations. And the longer this goes on, the more this will be and is being instrumentalized and there are political considerations. But nevertheless, I find that the European support has been rather strong with some countries being more more important than others. But the important thing, and we touched upon this with, with Donald Trump, right? I think the leadership of the United States here has been absolutely crucial. Just the political leadership of showing that this is the way that the West is going to go and then the kind of Europeans fell, fell in line. And I don't want to imagine what this would have looked like with another president other than President Biden at, at the lead of the United States. And I really wonder what happens if we get a kind of radical change in administration in the US because the US leadership here has been crucial. We don't have an endless podcast even to discuss and not quite endless war. But I wanted to ask you all one thing. We're at this point, I'm really struck by this conversation. We At this point, when we're talking about it all continuing, just as it is. More arms going in, Ukraine continuing to make some small advances. Russia, uh, Putin has regrouped from the, the Prigozhin mutiny and now the annihilation of Prigozhin by whatever means. It's all going on. We're talking about continued support, maybe, you know, wavering, maybe the debate getting a bit louder, but the support all there, US, Europe, certainly the UK. At what point does this change? Is it a question of time, of slogging through a long, muddy winter and seeing where it is? Is it about something fracturing, like a sudden change of the US administration? At what point does a different discussion begin? Chris, I want to ask you first. Yeah, I think, you know, all of those things you listed could have a significant impact on how this ends. And 
depending on which of those scenarios plays out, it could end very poorly for Ukraine or very poorly for Russia. I think, you know, if we see something as dramatic as domestic support for Putin's war in Russia collapse, that is something that certainly would play well for Ukraine and its Western backers. If Ukraine were to have a significant battlefield military victory, and mm. this counteroffensive were to surprise us, or if we get through winter and Ukraine's forces are not depleted and its equipment and shells are not depleted and we come and come spring, there's another counteroffensive and Ukraine is able to either cut that land bridge off or let's say destroy critical infrastructure in Crimea, such as the Kerch Bridge, that could lead to a new phase and put significant pressure on Russia. The other side of that is if we are to see, for example, a Trump presidency or a a counteroffensive, a major Ukrainian counteroffensive failure in the in in the next you know, weeks or coming months, no progress on the Ukrainian side next year, going into the U.S. elections where you know Donald Trump does stand a chance of winning, that could put Ukraine in a particularly tough position just because it is going to raise the question of, is the United States going to continue leading that support for Ukraine in the likely many months, if not you know next few years to come? That could embolden Russia, which at that point might see an opportunity to bring this to some sort of end. And if Russia is still holding on to the four regions that it controls, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Lugansk, as well as Crimea, then you know that might be a moment where Putin looks to consolidate what he has, solidify those front lines, try to cut some kind of deal with the backing of a president who is more sympathetic toward the Rus- Russian position and has said, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, um, speaking of Donald Trump here, that Ukraine not being in NATO and you know would be something that he would support and a way to solve this issue. You know, I'm careful to, I don't want to say this is how it's going to end. I think there are still a lot of ways this can go. And I want to just reiterate that I think it's still much too early to count Ukraine out. It has surprised us again and again. And I think that just like Aresia said earlier on, you know, the Ukrainians are fighting for their survival. This is an existential fight. So regardless of what changes in terms of Western support, the Ukrainians are not going to give up Crimea or any of those four territories I just listed without fighting. And, you know, I think that is something that really needs to be kept in mind. And that, you know, just to go back to the idea of support, if we want Ukraine to win, and I think we in the West want this to end sooner rather than later, I think that more support in the immediate term is necessary and preferred. I know the team here are going to passionately agree with you because they've just written a long report saying exactly that. Arisia, what do you make of that important point? I think Chris is making about that Ukraine will fight on even without Western support, that this war is not going away. 
There is now already an old maxim in Ukraine that if Russia stops fighting, there is no war. But if Ukraine stops fighting, there is no Ukraine. And and this very much is uh, you know a good summary of it. That's why I think, and something that James said, Western assistance and policy, mainly policy, I would say, because it follows shipments of equipment, must align with Ukraine on inflicting defeat to Russian troops on Ukrainian territory. And communicating that very clear. So I'd say scaling up production capability rather than decreasing and descaling Ukrainian ambition for the victory. There's a number of ways of approaching your question, Bronwyn, but if I take a different track to, say, Chris, and talk about it from a Russian view, and you talked about the regrouping after the Prigozhin affair or affairs, then it seems to me there's probably something going on in and amongst the inner circle in Moscow. We see this not just from the Prigozhin affair itself, but from the dismissal of General Surovkin too. So whilst we don't, we're not able to see inside the black box of the Kremlin entirely, and nobody is these days, then obviously the problem is that when, you're, when you have a series of clans, as you do in Russian politics, you need those clans to get together to, to remove the leader in some way. And of course, they're not willing to do that. But it's not out of the question. It's not beyond... The reality is that Putin can have wounds inflicted upon him. We've seen that. And how he will deal with the next one, we don't yet know. Just one th- one thing you may have heard, the very respected Russian analyst have said, for example, that he didn't think that Prigozhin was dead at all and that, that he was, he'd faked his own death and was preparing for a comeback. Now, of course, the conspiracy theories come out. But the point is that it is not beyond the realms of possibility that there will be a move from within. And just a final point is that Vladimir Putin is 71 next month, in October, actually, and that is for life expectancy of the average Russian male. Ulrika, maybe may I can turn to you just to make the final point. Can you see any development that would lead this to talks of negotiation or settlement, or is that either premature or irrelevant because of the commitment we've just heard about from Ukraine to keep on fighting for its existence? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to make predictions, but I got the same, I had the same points on my list as Chris and others have mentioned in terms of possible negative and positive outcomes for Ukraine, the US election and actual escalation, success in the counteroffensive, weakness in Russia, all of that. The only thing I would add to what has already been said is that one thing I also care and worry about is the impact of a potential economic downturn in Europe and most importantly in Germany. And we've been talking about the kind of sick man of Europe for a while now. So that could, you know, eventually have an impact for regarding the support for Ukraine. In the same way, another winter or a winter where the kind of the whole energy question comes back, you know, we seem, it seems as if this isn't a topic anymore, heating people's houses and gas supply and all of this, but I'm not convinced it it isn't. And so, yeah, this is just another thing that, that could have an impact regarding Western support. It's a really important reminder. This is not a war about money, but money certainly comes into it and may play its part in shaping the next stage of that. We're going to have to stop there. Big thank you to all my guests, Chris Miller, Ulrika Franke, James Nixie, Arisia Lutsevich. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links are going to be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask. We always read them. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events, and we've got lots and lots coming up, or to become a member, and we would love to have you, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can find the work of all our programs, including our Russia and Eurasia program. But with that... It's goodbye for me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. 